a look at new opportunities among the business trends. This is Global Business. From CGTN headquarters here in Beijing, this is Global Business. I'm Joe Vandenberg. Coming up on the program. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urges APEC finance ministers to enhance sustainable growth potential. Morgan Stanley's chief China economist says the country's potential growth is still higher and the country is continuing to make productivity gains in the catching up stage. And we bring you the latest from the ongoing second forum on China-Africa cooperation in agriculture. We begin with APEC meetings. On Monday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called on Pacific Rim Finance Chiefs to boost capacity for their economies during an annual meeting with APEC Finance Ministers. Yellen says they have agreed to do everything they can to prevent the Israel-Palestine conflict from expanding into a wider regional conflict. In her meeting with her Chinese counterpart, Lan Fo'an, Yellen stressed the significance of maintaining resilient communication channels with China. Hendrik Simbrandi has more from San Francisco. Well, on this Monday in San Francisco, finance ministers from the 21 member economies of the APEC region are meeting. They've got a lot to talk about. Obviously, the situation in the global economy has changed considerably in the uh, 12 years since the U.S. last hosted this meeting back in 2011. The finance minister turned their attention to three different areas, uh, three priority areas. One of them is supply side, and that's expanding productive capacity while uh, improving resilience and addressing inequality, also dealing with issues like labor supply, public infrastructure, and research and development. Then they looked at uh, sustainable finance. Uh, That's the whole uh, climate change affected issue, uh, dealing with energy transitions among these member economies and net zero commitments. Finally, they're talking about digital assets and the whole uh, issue of crypto assets, stable coins, central bank digital currencies, and blockchain technologies, obviously a major issue in the years to come. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who's leading these discussions, says these long-term priorities don't obscure the fact that a lot of work in those areas and others needs to be done now. Uh, Nothing that's uh, not urgent uh, that requires the finance minister's attention. Here's what she had to say. We need to further improve our long-term economic outlook by boosting labor supply, innovation, and infrastructure investment in ways that are also sustainable and reduce inequality. We need to put ourselves on a sustainable growth path, one where we safeguard our planet while providing our economies with the clean energy they need to grow and leverage emerging technologies to drive innovation while maintaining safe financial markets. During this meeting, they're looking at the economic outlook, not only for the world, but also for the APEC zone. Some of the numbers released were not terribly encouraging. It showed that GDP within the APEC bloc was projected to increase by 3.3% in 2023, but only 2.8% in 2024. So the situation still remains very fragile uh, in this particular part of the world. So a lot on these finance ministers played during these discussions. And of course, overhanging all of this is the relationship between the U.S. and China. The more that the U.S. and China can do to alleviate some of the tensions they've had, 
uh, in discussions over the next few days, and particularly involving uh, U.S. President Biden and uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, um, the more that can be done on that front, obviously, the easier it will be for the other economies. So they'll be looking to that as well. Hendrick Sabrandi, CGTN, San Francisco. China's finance minister Lan Fu and addressed the APEC finance minister's meeting on Monday. He said that China's economic recovery has sped up since Q3 this year and that momentum is expected to continue in Q4. He said China is still a key driver of global economic growth. As the world's economic recovery slows, he called for all APEC members to strengthen policy coordination, work to facilitate trade and investment, build a stronger supply chain, and construct an open economy across the Asia-Pacific region and the world. Being among the earliest members, China has actively initiated and contributed to the expansion of APEC's influence in global economic cooperation. Our Wang Ku has more. APEC or Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, started taking shape in 1989. Two years later, China joined APEC. Today, APEC is home to 38% of the world's population, representing approximately 48% of global trade in goods and services, and comprising more than 60% of world GDP. China alone contributes 18% to global GDP and has taken active initiatives within the bloc. For example, in the digital economy. China's endorsed work plan for the APEC Internet and Digital Economy Roadmap has been incorporated into the Putrajaya Vision 2040, the bloc's new long-term blueprint for economic cooperation. This aims to bridge the digital divide in the APEC region, with the digital economy projected to surge to around 70% of global economy over the next decade. That's a significant increase from the current range of up to 15.5%. Its impact, as you can imagine, extends beyond China, the Americas, or people along the Pacific Rim. It reaches everyone around the globe. Wonka, CGTN. The latest APEC regional trends analysis report says that economic growth in the APEC region is showing signs of improvement with expected growth of 3.3% in 2023 compared to 2.6% in 2022. For more on regional cooperation, let's cross to our reporter Jacita Sakao in Bangkok. Hi there, Jacita. So first, tell us more about the digital cooperation between China and Southeast Asian nations. Well, Michelle, this whole uh, topic of the digital economy was once a fringe policy issue, but the digital economy has now become central uh, to APEC's agenda for the past few years. It's no longer, not, no longer the question of how will the digital economy change trade, because it already has. It now becomes how can the economies of APEC stay at the forefront of this digital transformation? How can countries and businesses adapt to modern trade? And what are the rules and what are the regulations to keep up with this ever-changing digital paradigm. You know, things like cloud, 5G, AI, Internet of Things, blockchain, they are no longer buzzwords, but have become key to the development of a country's digital economy. And what we've been seeing since the pandemic was this digital push from China. We saw Chinese companies like Huawei, like ZTE, um, heavily invest in the Southeast Asia region. We saw a tandem of private actors and of state-owned enterprises that have 
have offered these inexpensive technological contracts and also speedily built this digital infrastructure across the entire ASEAN region. And because of this push for Thailand, the goal is now for the digital economy to account for 30% of the country's GDP by 2030. It's a similar story for the ASEAN region, uh, for it to account for 28% of the country's GDP also by 2030. So there's no denying that this digital economy has now become a new dimension of economic integration. It's enabled businesses to connect more easily across borders and reach new markets. And given that the APEC block represents almost 50% of global trade, it's really become an essential topic for a country's competitiveness, for sustainability, and for economic growth. You know, in Thailand, we have seen Chinese investments that have helped empower and shape the country's uh, startup ecosystem, especially in the field of education. And for this country, where there's a stark digital divide, providing more inclusive education is vital for the country's future workforce. Let's take a look. There have always been two Thailands, one that lives in modern cities, the other in rural towns and villages, both integral to the nation, yet deeply divided in income, education and technology. COVID-19 made this divide obvious. Lack of resources, digitally inept teachers and failure to implement an effective online curriculum meant that adapting to this seismic shift became education's Achilles heel. But if there ever was a silver lining from COVID's devastation, it's that it gave rise to education startups. Startups like School Bright, hoping to apply technology to help improve Thailand's education system. Teachers spend their 42% of their time doing work that is not related to student at all. So if we can help teachers to you know, reduce this 42%, they will have their valuable time back to, the, to those students who need them again. But how are rural traditional Thai schools adapting to 21st century technology? In Thailand's ancient city of Ayutthaya, the past, present and future are merging. This is one of the oldest schools in this province. Educators at this school broke up with decades of tradition when COVID-19 gave them a chance to reinvent, to reimagine what education could be. It was gradual, step by step, methodically strengthening their own identity to be a part of this modernized era. Morning roll call, no teachers required. The parents get real-time notifications on their phone that their child has arrived at school. Payments all scan through the Schoolbrite platform. Academic progress, homework management, tuition payments, two-way communication between teachers and parents, all done digitally. If there's any technology that can help solve problems in school, our school is ready to just and learn about new technologies. Although Schoolbrite had the perfect opportunity to penetrate the education system, they faced major bottlenecks. Schoolbrite needed to scale to meet the demand. And Huawei Cloud, the cloud computing platform under Huawei, the Chinese tech giant, would become their saving grace. I felt Huawei is the one of the most invested in terms of education tech for good. Working with Schoolbrite has given us, given Huawei the opportunity to see beyond just supporting talent 
you can see what Thailand can become. A catastrophic disaster accelerated the digitalization of Thailand's education system. Thai schools are now adapting, preparing students for a world that does not yet exist, for future jobs that have yet to appear. Nusita Saogao, CGTN, Thailand. Now, for more discussions on how the APEC meetings are boosting global economic cooperation, we're joined by Chu Tiang, research fellow at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Chu Tiang, good to see you. So, first, how can we work together to enhance global economy growth by coordinating international economic policies? Well, I think more than ever we understand uh, why we need international collaborations to restore our economic growth, right? To take a look at the climate change, take a look at the geopolitical conflict, inflation. I think human beings more than ever as a total community are facing common challenges than ever. And in order to restore our economic growth, I think the first thing we need to do is to restore to talk to each other, like APAC meeting, I think is a good example. We really need to sit down and to look into each other's eyes and you know talk to each other to understand the thoughts and the concerns of each other. And secondly, is we need to immediately restore the free trade and the international orders uh, instead of uh, you know building wars and making trenches and barriers and stuff from uh, your your neighboring countries because this trade system has actually made the prosperity we have been experiencing all these years after the Second World War. And thirdly is technology cooperation. A lot of people are using technology uh, R&D as a weapon against each other, but they fail to understand that technology is basically the solo key factors promoted the whole global you know, uh, in, uh, global investment, global development, and etc. If we just, uh, uh, you know, try to impede each other from getting into the technology, the whole world will suffer from it. And also, uh, next is financial corporations. We have seen the turmoils happened in the international financial arenas and international corporations on the financial regulations. Corporations is important more than ever. And also, last but not least, is inclusive development. We need to reduce the gap of uh, countries' development. So uh, otherwise, you know, poor countries will fall behind further and further. Popularism, nationalism will be fueled, and their national cooperation will be less unlikely. So after all this has been done, I think we will move forward and uh, embrace a better future. All right. Thank you so much, Chu Tiang, uh, for us. Morgan Stanley's chief China economist Robin Xing rejects the comparison between the current Chinese economy and Japan's economy in the 1990s. In an interview with Xi Jinping's Yang Shenshen, he said China's potential growth is still higher, and the country is continuing to make productivity gains in the catching up stage. From your perspective, what's the opportunities and the challenges do you think a Chinese economy is facing now?、Um, some people are comparing China to Japan. Given Japan's experience about this deflation in the housing sector, the debt problem, and demographics, but I would say China's three D debt, deflation, and the demographics are very different from Japan, because number one, China's potential growth is higher than Japan back in 1990s.、Um, back in 1990s, Japan's per capita GDP is already higher than the U.S. And that means this catching up stage in Japan is over. But in China's case, today you still see this 
entrepreneurs are trying to making progress on their international competitiveness, taking market share from competitors. And all these services sectors are still very much innovative. That means this catching up effect in China is still there because China's per capita income is still way below U.S. level. So naturally, China has a higher potential economic growth than 1990s Japan. That's the first difference. Secondly is the firepower of government policy. We mentioned China has a relatively low central government debt. So China does have a lot of room to further use central government fiscal policy to provide a cushion when the economy is facing the 3D downside. Um, for example, the local debt issue. What about the central government stepping in, providing a systemic debt resolution, doing some swap program with the local government financing vehicle debt? China has the room to do that, and that's also a huge difference between China and Japan. So overall, yes, there is a lot of challenges, but we think China's potential growth is higher. They are still making productivity gain in this catching up stage, and China has a lot of room to use government policy to provide a cushion during this challenging period. China has achieved significant progress and breakthroughs since unveiling the strategic plan for comprehensive deepening reform. Global Business is introducing a series highlighting accomplishments over the past decade, encompassing state-owned enterprises, sustainable development, technological innovation, and rural land reforms. Today, we focus on state-owned enterprises. Jinzhou Port, which operates a major port in the Bohai Sea, eliminated excess capacity and developed new routes following the rollout of the China-Mongolia-Russia Economic Corridor. Guanyang reports. For 20 years, Zhao Wei has worked at the port of Jinzhou. As the port's business expanded, so did his ascend up the career ladder. I started as a trainee and moved up steadily through positions such as service porter, port planner, to operational manager. These opportunities make me feel valued. Founded in 1990, the port's sole business was grain logistics, moving crops from the northeast to southern parts of the country. This changed with the rollout of China-Mongolia-Russia Economic Corridor, one of the six major corridors envisioned by the Belt and Road Initiative. As for the port itself, it focused on eliminating excess capacity and developing new rules to make a difference while competing with neighboring ports. It was these changes that brought promotion opportunities to employees like Zhao Wei. As part of our action plans to reform SOEs, China has, in recent years, integrated the port assets at provincial level to better help allocate resources and eliminate cut-through competition. We've made top-down efforts to optimize our existing routes for the China-Mongolia-Russia Economic Corridor by negotiating with the transport and railway bureaus, customs, and logistics companies from the three countries. Our geographical position makes us the nearest seaport to enter Mongolia through the Zhuangadabuchi port. The development of Jinzhou Port helps the city engage in port and maritime activities. And Jinzhou's goal of building a regional center relies on these activities. In this year alone, over 118 billion yuan has been invested in port-related projects. 
as China steadily pushes forward with its high-quality reform and opening up through development plans like the Belt and Road Initiative. Experts say that old ports like Jinzhou, Hebin, and will continue to be elevated to new stages. Guangyang, CGTN, Jinzhou, Liaoning Province. The second China-Africa Agricultural Cooperation Forum is taking place in Sanya, focusing on China's plan for promoting agricultural modernization in Africa. Guests from home and abroad gather to conduct strategic docking and policy exchanges on China-Africa agricultural cooperation. Our reporter Olivia He is at the forum to give us some more insights. Head there, Olivia. So, what have you got for us? Yes, Michelle. The second China-Africa Agricultural Cooperation Forum is currently taking place in Sanya. This forum aims to enhance agricultural collaboration between China and Africa, with a focus on improving agricultural development in African nations. The main goals include facilitating sustainable agricultural growth, promoting agricultural modernization, and crucially, assisting Africa in achieving the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Agricultural Development Goals. During the opening ceremony, representatives from China and Africa talked about their past successful collaborations and shared their plans for working together in the future. They specifically focused on China's agricultural technology and equipment that can be used in African agricultural practices. According to Tang Yuanjian, Minister of Agriculture and Rural Affairs of China, China is creating the China-Africa Agricultural Science and Technology Innovation Alliance. And as part of this effort, China will train a thousand more agricultural scientists and managers in Africa over the next three years. And yesterday, I had the opportunity to interview an agricultural leader from Egypt who shared his insights on China-Africa cooperation. Take a listen. China and Africa have vast potential for collaboration in the field of agriculture. China has the capacity to offer African countries cutting-edge technical assistance and support in various aspects of food production and transportation, including logistics, science, and technology. Additionally, China can contribute to training and empowering young individuals in Africa, equipping them with the latest knowledge and skills to enhance the efficiency and the resilience of our agricultural production in the face of contemporary challenges. Consequently, my greatest aspiration is for China and African nations to establish a mechanism that can invigorate our overall production and operations, encompassing imports, exports, logistics, and beyond. Ultimately, achieving long-lasting and sustainable development. New figures suggest that nearly one in every two Greeks pay over half of their monthly salary to cover their housing costs. It comes as rental prices in Greece have risen significantly faster than wages over the past few years. Evangelos Sipsas reports from Athens. Cleaning up and making a morning coffee. Justine is settling into her new routine at her new apartment, one that took her over three months to find. I randomly bumped into a friend that I hadn't seen in years and asked him if he knew anyone who was renting an apartment. And through him, I met two other girls who were looking for an extra flatmate to share expenses, and that's how I found this apartment. But that's not what she had in mind before moving to Athens. Initially, I wanted to rent a place on my own, but the rents were prohibitively high. So I decided to stay with my roommates. Every decent apartment costs around 700 to 900 euros, almost as much as my salary. 
Home rental prices in Greece have increased at a higher rate and faster pace than wages in recent years. Since 2018, rentals have risen more than 14%, forcing one in every two Greeks to pay over 50% of their monthly salary towards rent. According to the country's largest real estate union, foreign investment in housing stock and short-term rentals, such as Airbnbs, have contributed to the problem. But that's only part of the issue. There are a lot of reasons why this is happening. Some reasons are known and others are not. You have to dive deep in to understand why it's happening. It's a small construction activity which has decreased compared to the past years. It's also many apartments that are empty and not for rent or sale, with most belong to the government, funds or foreign banks. And there has been a question recently. Why are there so many and why are they closed? The issue of Greece's housing shortages is quite complex. Building new houses means huge costs at a time that the economy is already struggling. So the government is now shifting its focus to those empty apartments. We know we have hundreds of thousands of homes that are not in the market. They are not offered for rent. And that is something that's very troubling because they are already built And these are just vacant homes, vacant apartments. So one of the things that we're going to try to do is we're going to try to give incentives and give subsidies to owners of those apartments to renovate them and offer them for long-term rental purposes. Not for short-term platforms like Airbnb and others, but for long-term rental. Both the government and real estate unions agree that building new housing complexes and persuading owners to rent out empty properties could alleviate the shortage. But until hundreds of thousands of apartments make it to the market, people like Justine will have to continue to share living space, relying on others to put a roof over her head. Evangelo Sipsas for CGTN, Athens. This year's Cross-Strait CEO Summit has kicked off in Nanjing in eastern China's Jiangsu province with hundreds of business people from both sides of the Taiwan Strait participating. Some participants shared their thoughts with CGTN. I hope that I can gain more business development and I also hope to know more about the new policies and directions of the whole country for enterprises developing on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. I think this summit is particularly meaningful, especially at a time when the overall economy is in a slowdown. Both sides of the Taiwan Strait need to step up close cooperation. This year's theme is integrated development and high-quality development under the new pattern. I hope through this, we will be able to engage in more cross-strait integrated exchanges. And that will do it for this edition of Global Business. I'm Jia Vandenberg in Beijing. Thank you for watching. Stay with us.